It's worth noting that for the bulk of its history, Islam has been known as a religion of scholarship and not one of violence and terrorism. First and foremost, we need to get that out of the way. Sometimes, due to our own personal circumstances and our own experiences, we have certain ideas constructed about certain things that really tends to dominate the discussion whenever we talk about these things. Um, but that may not always be the case. Life may not be exactly how we've always experienced it. Um, certainly our experiences have been this way, um, but that does not mean that that was the case for all of history. So, as just a bit of an example here, there's always a lot of talk in European history about the Italian Renaissance and um, the, the effect that that had on human history, or really Western history. Um, <clears throat> but there is actually considerable evidence, considerable, the Renaissance was started not by flashes of genius from Italians in Genoa or Venice, but that it was actually started by Islamic scholars who had managed to preserve classical texts like Aristotle, Plato, multiple other ones in Arabic, along with medical texts, histories, and scientific documents which were then later translated into Greek and Latin and then distributed to Europe from these Islamic sources, these Arabic sources. That's just one example of many. Another one you could take would be one of the greatest centers of learning in its time, a city called Cordoba in Spain. But you should know that at the time when Cordoba was the great center of learning that it was, and multiculturalism, it was not when it was under the rule of the Spaniards. Some people may be surprised to find out that um, Spain was under the control of, not the control, but was predominantly Islamic for a very, very long time. Six to seven hundred years. Um, but... That being said, I'm going to get that out of the way, and we're going to move forward. This story that we're about to talk about begins in the 1700s, the early 1700s, about 1703, with a man named Muhammad ibn Abd al-Wahhab. Say that five times fast. <laughs> uh, Wahhab began preaching in a very small city in Arabia um, in like the 1720s, 1730s, and his entire message, he was, he was an Islamic scholar. Um, but his entire message focused, focused on strict adherence to Islam um, and the disregarding of what he saw as unnecessary additions to the religion. Um, so Islam is an old religion, first and foremost. It was started in the 7th century, around the, in the 600s, by Muhammad. Not this one, obviously, but a different Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and Wahhab saw how Islam had developed and how there had been the um, different aspects of the religion had been added to, such as the veneration of saints, visiting their tombs, the, you know, 
the preservation of sacred trees or holy wells, things like that. Things that, he, that the Quran never specifically says that a Muslim must do. Things that he thought were just a little extra, unnecessary. Um, now, a, a decent comparison to this, and this is just a comparison, um, there are some Christians today who believe that the Catholic additions to what they see as true Christianity, like honoring saints, the veneration of Mary, the mother of Jesus, um, holy sites, things like that, holy water, all this other kind of things, uh, are unnecessary um, and corrupting. That it's a departure away from true Christianity. Now, Wahhab himself is something like this. He, he is advocating for return to fundamentalism. Um, the fundamentals, the basics of Islam, that if you cannot find it directly in the Quran, you do not need to be doing it. Um, he preached that with these additions, that, that it corrupted Islam, that it corrupted Muslims all across the world, um, and that if you practice these things, you are not a true Muslim. Not at all. In fact, the only true Muslims are the ones who follow his own teaching, which I will now be referring to as Wahhabism. Um, and if you are not a true Muslim, if you are not following his teaching, you are a heretic. Kind of puts people in a very hard place. You either agree with this man on everything, or you're a heretic, and you are now worthy of being killed by him. Now, you'd think that this guy would not, would not have gotten much traction, and he originally didn't. Um, he, he managed to get one of the, uh, the city leaders that he was living in on his side uh, to allow him to carry out some of these reforms, but eventually he was forcefully expelled from the, re from the city by someone else, um, and he found shelter... Wahhab sh found shelter in the home of a man named Muhammad ibn Saud. And yes, Saud as in Saudi Arabia, S-A-U-D. Uh, Saud and his family converted to Wahhabism. They liked this. And <clears throat> Muhammad ibn Saud helped Muhammad <laughs> ibn Abd al-Wahhab spread his beliefs all across Arabia with force if necessary. Saud had the resources. He was, uh, he was a, from what I understand, fairly wealthy. Um, they managed to capture and destroy capture the cities of Medina and Mecca and destroy the tombs of Islamic saints and holy men, prophets, um, holy places. They destroyed those things because they did not adhere to true Islam. All of this came crumbling down when Mehmet Ali was sent in by the Ottoman Empire to crush the rebellion, which he did brutally absolutely destroyed this entire uprising. This was unacceptable. Remember, this is all taking place within the Ottoman Empire, within their territory, which should kind of give you a clue as just how, um, <clears throat> how little control they had over this region, which kind of goes into the larger discussion that we're having on the weakening of the Ottoman Empire. Anyway, um, Arabia was secured, and the Hijaz, which is the area that contains Mecca and Medina, were taken from the Wahhabis. But, as the United States has learned fighting terrorism, ideas can't be killed. This is a lesson that the Ottomans were going to have to learn the difficult way, and it seems that everyone 
has to learn the difficult way. We're going to move forward a little bit to the early 1900s prior to World War I. The Ottoman Empire is failing, and everybody knows it. The Ottomans did really did what they could to try to uh, salvage their their empire, salvage something, um, but they, at the very least, maybe slow the decay, if maybe stop it outright. Um, a series of reforms have been put into place in the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans, it's worth it's worth understanding that for the majority of their history, the Ottoman Empire was one of the most powerful nations on earth. Um, these, I mean, it, you need to understand, these were the guys who polished off Constantinople in 1495. They effect effectively ended what was left of the Roman Empire. And they took over the city of Constantinople, which Constantine, the Emperor Constantine of Rome, had, had established. No, he did not create it. There was already a city there. He just moved the capital there. But anyway, um, and then they, and it's modern day Istanbul. Um, but the Ottoman Empire was incredibly, incredibly powerful. Why else did Christopher Columbus sail the opposite direction, looking for trade routes to Asia? It's because the Ottomans were in the way. And he didn't want to go through them. He didn't like Muslims and he didn't like the taxes that he had to pay on it. Um, the Ottomans were incredibly powerful, but they're faltering now in the 1800s and into the 1900s because they're falling behind. They're seeing that all these other major European countries are industrializing. They're going through the, the Industrial Revolution, but for some reason the Ottomans just can't seem to get a grasp on that. And the several wars that they fought have just been outright failures. I mean, for example, the Greeks managed to be have their own revolution and fight off an entire army and effectively win independence from the Ottoman Empire. And they, they were, they've been slowly getting chipped away, losing regions, losing power, losing people. Um, the empire is failing and they need something to prop it up, fix it. So that's all the success of European nations like France, Germany, England, maybe even the USA, but you know, um, and they thought that maybe if they adopted some of these European practices, um, what, what historians typically call modernizing reforms, then perhaps, perhaps they can solve their problems, prevent the empire from failing altogether. So that's what, exactly what they did. They start adopting almost everything uh, European that they can get their hands on. Trying to start their own uh, industrial revolution and to get themselves caught back up so they don't lose what they used to have. They even adopt Western fashion, secularization, Western-styled si schools, factories. This even led to a period called the Tulip uh, period, which is like a um, period in Ottoman culture where they were almost directly copying um, some of the major cultural works of Europe. And it's not because they thought they were inferior, but it's just because they, they really needed something, something to keep them from, from falling apart here. Um, ultimately, though, all of these reforms failed. By 1918, the empire was gone. 
In the midst of all this westernizing, though, a group of fundamentalists, the Wahhabis, were dissatisfied with the direction that their nation and Islam as a whole were going in. What you need to consider is, think about this, if, if venerating and, and holding up um, Islamic saints, holy people, wells, and trees, was considered to be heretical, heretical by the Wahhabis, how are these people going to reform, respond to reforms that are taking place within their nation meant to explicitly remove religious influence from government and an attempt to make them more like Western Europeans? They obviously did not approve. These fundamentalist groups grew disillusioned with the Ottomans and their attempt to make their world a modern one. And upon the failure of the Ottoman state, the British and the French carved up former lands of the Ottoman Empire and set up various protectorates where you would have, you know, major regions that would be under British protection, under French protection. Or this would just be outright owned by the British, outright owned by the French, or outright owned by the Russians. This is all part of the much larger Sykes-Picot agreement. If you want to have a little bit more information on that, you can go look at Trouble in the Middle East, Episode 1. Some of the Arabs became um, outright hostile and they wanted a nation of their own, free of meddling from Western empires. Um, this whole, like I said, this whole Sykes-Picot agreement and the Balfour Declaration in and of itself rubbed them the wrong way. The people of the Middle East were caught between multiple forces, it seemed. Capitalism on the one hand, which included Westernization and what some people have started to call, I love this term, Coca-Colonization colonization, corporate capitalism, corporate colonization, basically, as some have called it in the 70s and 80s and even to, up till today. Meanwhile, the other option on the other side of this was communism being pushed on them by the Soviet Union, which disregarded some of the fundamental um, values of Islam, even for the more... Um, I don't want to say liberal, but even for the less fundamentalist ones, communism itself, as it was championed by the Soviet Union, um, really disregarded some of the main teachings of Islam. First and foremost, religion itself. This led people to really, um, with the influence of the Wahhabis, to have really only one other choice. In the next episode, we'll talk about the rise of Islamic fundamentalist groups like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Al-Shabaab, among others, and the events that ultimately led to 9-11 and further Western involvement in the Middle East. Until then, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.